Good morning. Let me uh, invite you to uh, turn to the New Testament letter to the first, the first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17. And as you arrive there, I'll ask you to uh, bow your heads and open your hearts and join me in inviting God's presence with us today. Lord Jesus, thank you for being here to meet with your people and worship. Thank you that as we recognize the miracle of Pentecost, the profound presence of your spirit with your people, that we are assured that you are here with us. And so, Lord, uh, let us be open to you. Let us be responsive to you. Let us be um, malleable in your hands so that you will form us into the sorts of men and women and children, into the sort of people that you uh, long for us to be here in this place. And so, Lord, do that uh, today. And that will be our gift of, uh, of worship to you, a gift that is worthy of our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you uh, have your uh, bulletins, you'll see that the uh, question that I'm asking with the sermon title today is, what kind of a church do you want to be? And I also want to recognize, as I alluded to in the prayer, that this is Pentecost Sunday, and it's also Communion Sunday. And so I'm going to try to answer the question, what kind of church do you want to be? by bringing together Pentecost and Communion. You may wonder, how are you going to do that? And I'll tell you, I'm wondering that too. So let's see how this works, right? Let's see. Let's see what we can get. Uh, the text is uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But now, Paul is writing this to the church in Corinth, but now when I mention this next issue, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First of all, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. It's not the Lord's Supper that you are concerned about when you come together. For I am told that some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry, while others get drunk. What? Is this really true? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace the church of God and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say about these things? Do you want me to praise you? Well, certainly I do not. For this is what the Lord himself said, and I pass it on to you just as I received it. On the night when he was betrayed... The Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So, 
If anyone eats this bread or drinks the cup, this cup of the Lord unworthily, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup unworthily, not honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have even died. But if we examine ourselves, we will not be examined by God and judged in this way. But when we are judged and disciplined by the Lord, we will not be condemned with the world. So, dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home, so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters when I arrive. And I bet they can hardly wait, right? (laughs) So, first of all, Pentecost. Number one, Pentecost. Pentecost is the day that we celebrate the birth of the church. Right? Pentecost is the day that we celebrate the, the inauguration of God's people joined together when the promised Holy Spirit is sent to them. Right? You remember the story in the book of Acts where the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, are all gathered together in that upper room and all of a sudden there's a, a swooshing sound that sounds like a, a rushing wind and suddenly everybody has a, a little tongue of, of fire sitting on their heads. Right, And uh, this is the, the moment when God's Spirit arrives with the church. And the moment that the Spirit arrives is also the moment that the church's mission begins. Right, All along the way, all the way up until this point, uh, uh, Jesus kept saying, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, just wait, just stay put, don't go, don't do that, don't say a word. And now, suddenly, with the Spirit's arrival, the church is sent out. Right, The mission begins with the inauguration of the church. And Acts tells us that the mission is, to, is for the church to go from Jerusalem, right, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. So the mission begins. At, from the very beginning, what we see on Pentecost is that the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. In other words, you can't separate the two. The church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. In other words, mission is not just something that the church does, but it is who the church is. Right? When the church begins, the mission begins. And then central to that mission, absolutely critical to the mission of the church, the being of the church, even more central, even more critical than any words that the church might say or any programs that the church might offer, central to that mission that the church is launched on is the unity of the church. So the mission is the church, and central to that mission is unity. The unity of the church is the authentication and the proclamation of the gospel. Let me say that again. The unity of the church is the authentication and the proclamation of the gospel. The good news is seen and experienced in a unified church. 
And so Pentecost itself teaches that this unity is central to the mission of the church. The miracle of Pentecost is not primarily that people could hear different languages being spoken as if it was their own. The miracle of Pentecost is the unity of the church. Right? The miracle of Pentecost is that people from all different tribes and tongues and languages have come together, and in a moment, the scattering that happened at the Tower of Babel is reversed, and the church is brought back together again into a unity. The miracle of Pentecost is a miracle of the reunification of God's people. Pentecost and unity go together. In John 17, Jesus affirms this. He points forward to this. And he says in his prayer for the church, when Jesus is praying for the church, and in John it specifically says, not only is he praying for the the, the little group of people that are sitting with him at the table, but it specifically says that Jesus is praying not only for them, but for everybody who will come after them who will believe because of their testimony. In other words, You are the great, 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 great grandchildren of the people who Jesus is sitting with at the table, right? And he's praying, Jesus is praying for you. And this is what Jesus prays. He says, Lord, Father, my prayer is that they would be one. That they would be one. What kind of one? He says, even as you and I are one. In other words, the unity that Jesus prays for for his church is the same unity that he enjoys with the Father. That's a profound unity. That's profound oneness. He prays for that unity in his church. Why? He says this, so that, so that the world will know that you sent me. How does the world know who Jesus is? When they see the church living in unity. How is the mission of the church accomplished? When the world sees the church living in unity. A little earlier in John 13, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Your faith is authenticated. Your faith is demonstrated to be real and not, and not fake. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Why love? In Colossians 3, Paul says, Above all, put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. So Pentecost is the beginning of the church. It is the launching of the mission. The two are the same. The church and its mission are one. And that mission is accomplished when the church lives together in perfect unity. So given all of that, it's even more shocking to discover what's going on here in this church in Corinth. It's even more uh, shocking to see the ways that this unity has been damaged. Paul alludes to um, a lot of different sorts of division. He says in verse 18, I hear that there are divisions among you. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and it's a fractured church. It's a broken body. They are not exhibiting this essential gospel-authenticating, gospel-proclaiming unity. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then he's going to give a very specific example of one of those kinds of divisions. And he says, because of the way that this division has infested and infected you, he says, what you're actually doing, he uses very, very strong language, he says, you are despising the church. Disunity is a way of despising the church. 
the church. And he says, you are humiliating the poor. Despising and humiliating. And Paul is appalled. What's going on here in Corinth? There are two things that you have to know about this early church if you're going to understand what's happening in Corinth. The first thing is that uh, these early Christians in Corinth had uh, started worshiping on Sunday instead of on the Sabbath day. And so they've started worshiping on Sunday as a way of recognizing the resurrection of Jesus. But in this culture, Sunday is just another work day. Right? The Sabbath day is set aside for rest, but Sunday is just another work day. And so, when do you meet together for church? At the end of the work day. So, uh, the Christians would gather in homes after work, later in the evening, on into the night. So it's a late nighttime gathering. The second thing that you need to know is this. That when Christians gather together in homes... It had more the feel of what our Oasis groups are striving for than what uh, this kind of a service that we do on Sunday mornings is striving for. Uh, This is an intimate uh, collection of people who come together, and they actually eat a meal together, right? And so they come together, and they have what we would call communion, uh, what we would call uh, the Lord's Supper, Uh, only it isn't just a little ceremonial bite, right? It isn't just that everybody gets a little bite, and uh, you hope that you can swallow it before you have to talk again or something. Um, and then you get a little sip of juice. Right? It, isn't, it isn't teensy, right? It isn't ceremonial, right? It's not just a, a nibble. They're eating a whole meal. So think about uh, an Oasis potluck. Or think about a uh, fast food uh, um, gathering. when There's a whole meal that the church sits down to eat. In some ways, Wednesday night and Sunday night uh, in our uh, practice resembles more uh, what this early church was doing than anything we do on Sunday morning. And so this, uh, so this group is coming together, and they're having a meal, and it's their communion. It's their Lord's Supper. It's sacramental. It's their holy time. And what's happening is this, that there are uh, wealthy individuals in this congregation Right? The wealthy individuals uh, who don't have to work all day. Uh, these are the ones who own the businesses. They have people who do the work for them. Uh, they've inherited their wealth. Uh, they, they're landowners. They're established. They're the, the wealthy, comfortable. And so they can arrive early. Right? They get to the uh, gathering at the house uh, before anybody else arrives. They're the first ones there. And they get there, and they dig into the potluck. And maybe they say, I'm just going to start off with a little bite here or there, just a little nibble, let's try that while it's still hot, right? And the next thing you know, they've demolished everything, right? And there's not even a crumb that's left over. And along the way, you know, they're not drinking Welch's grape juice, right? They're not washing it down with grape juice. They're drinking real wine, right? And many of them are getting intoxicated, so they're, they're, they're uh, um, feasting and getting drunk. And by the time everybody's intoxicated and everybody's eating all the food, then the second wave of attenders begins to arrive. And it's the, uh, the folks who have had to work all day. Right? They're the ones who don't have means. 
Uh, in some ways, the language suggests that there's a, there's a group that are destitute. Maybe they're, um, they're, they're day workers, and they're the ones who stand in the field hoping to get picked up that day, and they have to wait all day to see if they'll get hired. And they're working for um, scraps of reward. So they have been out working, out toiling, doing demanding work, and they arrive at the table hungry and thirsty, tired, and they discover that the food is gone and the wealthy have eaten it all. And so Paul says, I can't praise you for that. What, what, whatever, whatever else you think that you're doing when you're coming together and doing that, whatever else it is, it's not the Lord's Supper. That's not Jesus' table when you do it that way. Why? Because Jesus' table is a place of grace. Jesus' table is a place of grace. In the Reformed tradition, we talk about the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, communion, and baptism as uh, means of grace. They are a place where we experience grace, where we are fed grace. And Jesus wants to share his grace. Jesus' table brings grace and embrace and inclusion rather than shame and exclusion. So let me tell you two stories about that. Two stories. First, these are both, um, uh, these are both from the Gospels. There's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 about a poor man named Lazarus. Right? Do you remember the story? There's a poor man named Lazarus, and he sits just outside of the gates of a rich man. And we don't know the name of the rich man, but we know he's very wealthy. And in this story, Jesus tells us that this wealthy rich man dresses in really fine clothing and in robes, and that he feasts on gourmet dinners every single night. And Lazarus is this poor beggar, and he is crippled in some way, he's not mobile. He's covered with sores, and there's even this really graphic detail in the story that the dogs come and and lick the sores of his body. And Lazarus is sitting out there, and every single night, he can smell this rich food being served to the rich man and his friends as he sits alone outside of the gate. And as the story goes on, Jesus tells us that both Lazarus and this rich man die, and After they die, their positions in life are reversed. And Lazarus is welcomed in, and he's embraced, and he's satisfied, and he's included. And the rich man finds himself on the outside. And in the story of Jesus, there are lots of different things that we can learn from that. But one of the central things is this, that as the story progresses, as the parable unfolds, what we see is this, that for Lazarus, the most painful thing that he endures is not the the aching tummy because of his hunger, and it isn't even his sores. The most painful thing that he experiences is the spiritual pain of seeing his relief so close and yet so far. In other words, the experience of being invisible the experience of being forgotten, the experience of being overlooked and excluded, and recognizing the indifference of the rich. And that's sort of what's going on here in Corinth. 
The rich are seemingly unaware of the pain that they're causing the poor in their midst. And Paul says, when you cause poor uh, Christians, when when you cause pain to another, you're doing violence to the body. You're you're coming to the body in an unworthy way. Why? Because the body, the church, the congregation, the family of God is supposed to be a place where the pain of each is known to all. The pain of each is is known to all. And no one is invisible and no one is indifferent. That's grace. To be in a place where nobody is invisible, nobody is overlooked, nobody is forgotten, nobody is left behind, and nobody is indifferent. It's a community of grace. It's a table of grace, a means of grace in our lives. Second story is this. This goes back to the very first communion meal. It's the communion that... Uh, Paul describes here, beginning in verse 23, where he says, this is what the Lord himself has taught us to do. In other words, he's saying, this is not just a tradition of the church. This isn't just something that the disciples made up as time went on. But this is a teaching that comes directly from Jesus. This is the way Jesus wants to manage his table. And he reminds us, it's, it's really interesting to me, that of all of the ways that the Lord's Supper, that that, that night is described, Right? It could be on the night that Jesus was about to, to die or be delivered. It's, but the way that's always described is this, on the night that he was betrayed. Why is that? Why is that little phrase, on the night that he was betrayed? You've heard it a thousand times here. I think it's a way of reminding us who is at the table with Jesus. It's a way of reminding us who is sitting there. Uh, who's at this table? Who's sitting with Jesus? As you look around the, the room... There are some interesting characters eating with Jesus at that, at that communion table, aren't there? Right, there's Peter. Peter is sitting there. And Peter, God bless him, after three years of knowing Jesus and following Jesus and talking with Jesus and living with Jesus and, and seeing some incredible things, poor Peter still doesn't have a clue. Right? He's clueless. And so when Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Look, I wanna, I'm going to wash your feet. What does Peter do? No, 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 you can't ever do that. Don't, don't wash my feet. Let me wash your feet. I'm not, you can't touch my feet. And then Jesus says, Peter, I have to wash your feet or you can't follow me. And then what does Peter do? Right? He says, not just, oh, okay, but he says, now wash all of me then. Right? You know, and he starts taking off his robes. Wash everything. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, not all of you, just your feet. Did you hear what I said? Just washing your feet today. Peter is there. Peter the clueless. Who else is at this table? Judas is there. Judas is sitting at this table with Jesus. Judas, who is not just clueless, but he's a betrayer. He is an instrument of death. And Jesus, we're told, at this meal, this first communion, Jesus breaks off a piece of bread, and he dips it into the common cup, And he offers it to Judas. And in the Middle Eastern culture that this meal is set in, 
That gesture is a ceremonial gesture that is intended to communicate a desire for deep friendship. And so as Jesus tears off the piece of bread and offers it to Judas, Jesus is basically saying, Judas, I want to offer my deep friendship to you. I want to be united with you. I want to share life with you. And it's left up to Judas to reject it. But it's the gift of hospitality. It's the gift of inclusion. It's the gift of grace that Jesus welcomes both Peter and Judas to his table and everybody else in between. You know, it's interesting to me. Every single Christian church celebrates some version of the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist. But there's no place that you can go in the Bible where it says exactly what's happening when we do this. Right? It's always left a little bit mysterious. It's a little bit nebulous. Uh, there's some, it's as if there's something that is happening with us and to us and in us and around us that is beyond what language can get at. But I think there's a clue here about how this sacrament works to produce unity in us. And this clue, I think, is where Paul says, examine yourselves. Paul's advice to the Corinthian church is examine yourself. He doesn't say examine your theology, primarily. And he doesn't say, and this is, this is a good corrective to a lot of us church folk who really like to be in everybody else's business. He doesn't say examine everybody else. He says examine yourself. Look at yourself. Look at your life. Look at who you are. Look at how you're showing up at our table. And, and when I examine myself, when I invite God's Spirit to allow my gaze to get a little bit beneath the surface where I like to pretend that I have it all together, when I examine myself, here's what I begin to find. I begin to find that I am Lazarus. That I am unspeakably poor. Right? That I'm invited not to identify with the rich man who has everything, but I'm invited to, to identify with Lazarus, the one who has nothing. I'm invited to see my own helplessness. I'm invited to see my own hollow hunger. I'm invited to see my own gnawing desire to be seen, to be included. And then at this table, Jesus says, Mike, I see you, and I welcome you. And when I begin to examine myself, I discover, <laughs> I discover that I'm more like Peter. Right? I discover that I'm like Peter. I'm well-intended, but I'm clueless. I don't have a clue most days about what Jesus is doing, what it means to follow him. I don't have it all figured out. I'm the clueless Peter sitting at the table. And when I come to this table, I see Jesus who says, let me just be your patient teacher. Let me show you what I'm doing.
Let me show you who I am. Let me show you what I have in mind. And I receive this grace of patience. And then sometimes, in the midst of examining myself, not only do I see the poverty of Lazarus and the cluelessness of Peter, but I also see the betrayal of Judas. That I am Judas. It, it isn't just that how could Jesus possibly allow this Judas to be at his table and share friendship with somebody who was going to betray him so profoundly, but it's how could Jesus allow me to be at his table? How could Jesus welcome me, who, who goes beyond misunderstanding Jesus, to actively betraying Jesus, to leading the revolt against him? And Jesus, when he sees my betrayal, offers me friendship. See, when I see myself in this story, not as powerful or wise or good, but just simply as welcomed at this table by Jesus, then this becomes grace to me. And I don't know how it works for you, but this is how it works for me. It's, it's as if when the full weight of that grace comes home, when I fully experience what it means to be welcomed myself, that I am most likely to show grace in return. I'm more likely to see and to be moved by the needs of others. To include those around me who are different. To see in others that, that longing and desire to be included, to be welcomed, to be heard, to be cared for, to be significant. And to have compassion. And I believe that in some ways that's the mystery of unity in the church. It's, it's coming to live in this unity as we both receive grace and then having received it, share it. Receiving it and sharing it. Unity and oneness. All right. What kind of church do you want to be this Pentecost Sunday? Mark Laberton is the president of Fuller Seminary. And he uh, recently put into words some thinking that uh, I haven't had words for but that I've been working on for a long time. He's answering the question, what kind of church do you want to be? And the way that he asks the question is this. He says, will there be a church in the 21st century that matters? Do we want to be a church that matters? Will there be a church in the 21st century that matters? 
We live in a uh, time and in a culture of incredible divisions. Just scrolling through my Facebook this morning, the polarities and the oppositions that emerge in our culture are beyond description. If we're going to be a church that matters, if we're going to be a church on mission, And we're going to be a church that's called to live in unity. We have just as many disagreements as the rest of the world does. Some of the differences that are represented in this room today are sharp differences, profound disagreements. And we have the option of saying we're just like the world. We can polarize and we can divide and we can attack. We can form oppositions. Or we can say to the world, we can proclaim the gospel. And we can say to the world, in spite of our profound differences and and, and deep divisions, we know what it means to receive grace. And we know what it means to show grace. We know what it means to live in unity. There is a different way. There is a different way to be human beings together. And I'm coming to believe that that kind of a church, a church that says there is a visible and a powerful option for people with disagreements and differences, where they can be found at the same table, offering profound friendship to one another. I'm coming to believe that the church that can figure out how to do that will be a church that matters the 21st century. So this Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church, what kind of a church do you want to be? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for sending your spirit to us. Thank you for the gift, the miracle, and the mystery of unity. Lord, help us to set aside our presumptions and our stridencies and come to this table vulnerable and exposed and seeing ourselves as we really are as we stand before you. And as we receive your grace, Lord, give us courage and compassion and vision to share that grace in ways that might, at this moment, take our breath away. And Lord, above all, we join you in your prayer for your church that we would be one as you and the Father are one. Lord, would that be our great work as your people sent on mission to a world that desperately needs to see your kingdom in action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.